0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. This is Professor Robert D'Agostino with Do Facts Matter. And today I've got a very interesting guest who's an expert in the criminal law area and a lot of experience in death penalty cases, for example. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, dealing with the wrongdoing by the uh, uh, prosecutors, the federal assistant attorney generals. Uh, I've had two experiences with, uh, with wrongdoing by, by the prosecutors when they wanted to get an answer, and they didn't get the answer they wanted, so they wanted to in one case, wanted my client to commit perjury. In another case, they brushed off uh, evidence of innocence and said, we don't care about innocence, we only care about uh, convictions. And uh, But I, I'm not a criminal attorney. I didn't have a lot to that. Of course, in the newspaper, there's been some wrongdoing by the uh, uh, an attorney for the FBI about falsifying evidence in the Carter Page case where he changed an email, the wording of an email, to, 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 to mean exactly the opposite of what the email really said. Uh, but with that, and this is of course a question of falsifying evidence, I'm going to turn something over to Professor Michael Mears, who is a well-known expert in, in criminal law, well-known uh, advocate for uh, in death penalty cases, and, in fact, he'll tell you a little bit about his background and the things he's done, and he'll talk a little bit about how you can deal with the problem that you may face by in, in, in dealing with the uh, assistant attorney generals who have the unlimited resources of the government behind them. Very hard to fight them. Uh, Mike, take it over. Well, thank you, Bob. The, uh, I, part of the problem uh, in any
1: wrongdoing by law enforcement, whether at the police level or all the way up to the assistant attorney generals. The part of the problem is that we place so much faith and trust in the officials who are prosecuting the law to do the right thing. We have to remind ourselves occasionally, and the Carter Page case is one of those uh, cases that calls for us to remind ourselves that there are individuals who push the limits and sometimes cross the line out of whatever reason and, and most often it's the idea that we're the right guys we have an obligation to get convictions and no matter how we get convictions that's how that's what we're going to do the the practice of falsifying information in order to obtain search warrants, or in this case, the Carter Page case, surveillance warrants and wiretap information is not widespread, but when it happens, it becomes such an insidious part of the prosecution that it calls the whole system into question. We rely upon judges, neutral magistrates, as they're referred to in legal jargon, uh, to be the winnowing point to be the gatekeeper. and when a police officer, FBI agent or someone of that nature goes before a judge, in this case it was a foreign surveillance judge who are appointed for specifically for these reasons but for these cases. Uh, we depend upon the judge to help ferret out the truth. If the FBI agent is lying in order to obtain a warrant, we expect the judge to step in and refuse to issue the warrant. The problem we get, and the problem that I think this case opens up for us up for discussion, is that if there is no winnowing out, if there is no gatekeeper function, and then you have a law enforcement official, FBI or otherwise, who pushes the line and crosses the line and presents false information in order to obtain a warrant, and then the system begins to fall apart. Now, there are a number of ways in which we as defense attorneys uh, try to prevent this from happening. Uh, the courts have stepped in in a number of cases, some of them death penalty cases, some of them just run-of-the-mill criminal cases, to try to send a message to law enforcement it doesn't always work. And here's the problem. Um, the courts will look to see, was the false alleg- what, what's the falsehoods presented by the FBI agent to the judge, uh, were they false? That's the first it's a two-step process. Okay, if they were false, then they go to the second phase, and that is, did it make a difference in this case? And invariably, the courts put a very high standard on evaluating the evidence. Yes, Mr. FBI agent, you lied. Yes, Mr. Uh, uh, Police officer, you lied. But it didn't change the outcome of where this case was going. So therefore, all you get is a slap on the wrist. That's the real problem we've got. In criminal cases, we have what's called a Brady violation when the prosecutor or the police withhold information that the defense Should have access to then the police have to turn it over if the court orders them to but there's no penalty to speak of and there is the problem and I think that's the problem we're looking at from the Department of Justice and the FBI in this Carter Page case The, the, the law says yes we can throw out that evidence but what's the penalty to the police officer or the FBI agent who lied in this case the police the FBI agent call it committing perjury as i understand the case in the sense of falsifying uh, a document but that's a rarity that usually doesn't happen
0: well what about the situation where the prosecutor the assistant attorney general uh tries to elicit perjured testimony from your client not necessarily not so much to to convict the client of anything, but because they got a target, and they want to get the target, and they say, well, you know this. I had this exact case. Uh, you know this guy, yeah. You work with him, yes. Here's what we think we've got. I don't know anything about that. Well, but you're going to testify to this, and my client was actually told that if he didn't testify the way the assistant attorney general wanted him to testify, a so federal U.S. assistant attorney general, that he would have his brother and his wife indicted. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you do about that? Well, first of all, you, in the
1: root of that type of problem comes with the plea bargaining practice that we have, forcing someone to assist in the prosecution of someone else back to what i said earlier there's very little penalties attached when those types of uh, that type of conduct is uh, is found out when it comes to light that there was coercion to get someone to lie or there was actual lies presented to obtain a warrant the problem i see it as a criminal defense practitioner is that there's very few penalties or put upon the prosecutors or the law enforcement agents when they falsify documents, when they lie, or when they coerce someone to lie in their behalf. Very few, if any, are ever prosecuted. This case that you brought up is, is a rarity in the sense that someone was actually forced to own up to a criminal act. That usually doesn't happen, and there is the problem. Police officers say, or prosecutors say, I need to get a conviction. The only way I can get a conviction in this case for the public good is to push the limits and perhaps cross the line. What we need to have, we need to have judges who are willing to hold people in contempt when they do that and even hold them in criminal contempt when they do something like that. That would put them in jail or put monetary fines on them.
0: We don't do that. Well, I'm in great. I'm, I'm not in favor of putting nonviolent uh, criminals in jail, but I'm certainly in favor of monetary fines, which may be more effective actually in, in the long run, making them cough up some some, some money. Uh, what would have been the now? As it turned out in this particular case, because of the timing of the various uh, trials, we were able to outfox the the assistant attorney general, and uh, we got a plea deal on my client. Uh, who did really nothing wrong except sloppy bookkeeping, and we got a plea a plea deal from from uh, on, on my client, and and, uh, and it was approved by the judge before he had to testify. So we, in a sense, double crossed the U.S. attorney by my client testifying honestly, and there were no consequences to my client on that either. Uh, but the question is, what should be the consequences? I guess uh, you suggested monetary uh, fine or even. Uh, uh, contempt or dismissal from their job absolutely and i think
1: uh, here again it's a much overused term but i think we need to apply this term to these situations called transparency when a prosecutor conducts themselves in such a way as if they've crossed the line or a police officer conducts themselves, even if we're not willing to prosecute them for wrongful illegal conduct we need to make that conduct public knowledge It's not done that way. There is not a a light of truth shown on that conduct. Give me a good example here in a death penalty case we had down in Richmond County. The GBI agent uh, investigating the case paid an informant $500 for his testimony against our client. That should have been disclosed under Brady versus Maryland. The fact that a witness in the case had received monetary benefit for their testimony, not even whether it was true or not, but that was not the question. They failed to disclose to the defense, in this case, it was a death penalty case, that they had paid money to this uh, witness. The case goes to trial, the witness testifies, uh, and there was no disclosure, there was no questions, uh, no uh, answers given as to their motive other than they were telling the truth. Client was convicted and sentenced to death. Only later during a habeas corpus proceeding were we able to get the records to show that the GBI agent had actually paid that informant. The penalty there was the death penalty was set aside. That whole six or seven week trial was thrown out, but they got to start over again. And where was the penalty? The GBI, GBI agent was not fired, was not punished. The prosecutor, who probably knew that that particular uh, event had happened, never disclosed it. as they should have done under Brady versus Maryland. There was no penalties on the prosecutor, and when that prosecutor runs for re-election or ran for re-election, he was never brought up. And so there was no penalty involved. They pushed the limit. They pushed it. To get a conviction and get the death penalty. When they were caught out in their misconduct, there was no penalty that fell back on them, other than the people of the, st- of the county of Richmond in the state of Georgia
0: had to pay for two death penalty trials. You know, it also reminds me of the second incident that I was involved in when I was talking to an assistant U.S. attorney, and I said, uh, we were talking about a case, and I said, you know, this guy's obviously innocent. Why are you prosecuting and he said, we don't care about innocence. I said, you don't? He said, no, no, we don't care about innocence. We only care if we have enough to get a conviction, and we think we can get a conviction in this case. So, in other words, it makes no difference to you that the guy's innocent. No. That's the honest answer he gave me. How do you deal with that? Well, i tell you how we deal with it. The Supreme Court dealt with that in a death penalty case. from
1: uh, uh, none, none of the law and order judge, but Antonin Scalia, bless his heart, rest his soul, uh, said... Innocence is not a question. Did he get a fair trial? And the Supreme Court in the United States in the Keller decision said, if we look at this, even if there was a question of innocence, even if he may be innocent, did the conviction meet the standards of fairness? If it does, the Court of Appeals, the Supreme Court, and all the appellate courts aren't concerned with whether or not the person is innocent. The question is, did he get convicted by, all, by the rules? There's a problem we've got. There's no again. It comes back to the, no penalty on misconduct.
0: Yeah, of course. Uh, uh, obviously, in our system, the, the fact finders are the jury, and obviously the, the appeals courts are mostly are, are, are concerned with with following the legal rules. Although, you know, once in a while, if it's really egregious, uh, they they can send the case back for, for, for remanding the case, as they call it. But but I you know I can understand Scalia's point there the court cannot be the, retry the facts uh, and uh, that's a problem i, I think that you, you see that there was an interesting um uh, uh film on tv the other night that really addressed addressed that question where the where the governor commuted a sentence and because the governor was convinced the guy was innocent and of course the mob went out and, and uh, executed him anyway uh, interesting interesting <laughs> Robert,
1: we're going to have to stop and think about that and take a break. We'll be back with Do Facts Matter and Robert D'Agostino right after this. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, about Dr. Al Shirts every Thursday morning yeah, at 8 a.m. And listen to The Doctor's Lounge, where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week.
2: Whether cruising the strip in a '57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a '71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Rinaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
0: This is Robert D'Agostino, Professor Robert D'Agostino, back with Do Facts Matter? And I have, uh, as my guest today, Professor Michael Mears. Uh, he, he's also a professor at John Marshall Law School and uh, a very experienced criminal attorney. Uh, and he's just finished talking, <laughs> telling a few war stories and, 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 and pointing out the problem of uh, prosecutorial uh, and, and police misbehavior, which is not penalized. And I've had two experiences, and I'm not a criminal attorney, so you can imagine that criminal attorneys have more than two experiences uh, of this kind of misbehavior, either lying or withholding evidence or even fabricating evidence. And, uh, Mike, i turn it back over to you. you got some other interesting cases about that? Yes, and, and let me point out, uh, back is,
1: before I started, um, is that we place so much trust in our elected district attorneys, our public servant police officers or our appointed attorney generals assistant attorney generals and attorney generals we as a society put so much faith in their ability to do the right thing the problem comes up is when they they being the prosecutor the police the assistant attorney generals or the fbi agents lose sight of their role in the prosecutorial system as you pointed out the prosecution is a process it's not just a goal you do not prosecute someone just to get a conviction you prosecute someone to enforce the law and to see that justice is done we have unbelievably good prosecutors in this country both at the state and the federal level i've known so many of them however every once in a while some of these prosecutors and there's one now that's involved in a case down in brunswick which everybody knows about but i'm not going to talk about has a history that if he's in court you cannot trust anything he said about what took place as far as the discovery the law is, it comes out of a United States Supreme Court case from back in the 70s, Brady versus Maryland. Miss Brady was on trial in a death penalty case. The prosecutor had information that diminished her role in the murder for which she was being tried. There was other people involved. But rather than disclose that information... To the defense attorney and Miss Brady. They withheld it. They withheld it because they wanted to get a conviction and the death penalty so badly they lost sight of the fact that they are public servants, not just getting convictions, but to do justice. The U.S. Supreme Court said, and they laid down the, the test, if the prosecutor, that includes the police, that includes attorney, Assistant Attorney General's and FBI agents, if any of those entities have information, knowledge, that would assist in the defense of a criminally charged person or would help the defense present a case that would end up with a fair result, they must disclose that information. That information must be turned over to the defendant. If they fail to do that, then they have committed a Brady violation. The courts have unfortunately put the burden back on the defendant and his attorneys to ferret out this information. It should be an automatic. There should not be any question as to whether or not information should be turned over. But because prosecutors, particularly at the state level, they, they get elected based upon their, quote, one loss record. And they don't want to lose cases. Winning or losing is not the issue. Winning or losing is not the goal of a criminal defense, a criminal trial. It's doing justice. I can I can point out to you a number of cases where DNA samples were not used uh, because they were never disclosed to the defendant or his attorneys, and those things were only found out later on. And there, there's an, an anomaly here in Georgia now. the the listeners to understand this. We're one of the few cases, uh, particularly in the death penalty area, that does not provide attorneys to people who have been convicted and sentenced to death. Now, they get volunteer attorneys, they get some organizations that help out, but the Georgia Supreme Court has said you do not have a right to have an attorney appointed to represent you after your direct appeals are over. These We call those habeas corpus proceedings, and they're civil proceedings. And the Georgia Supreme Court has taken the position that even in death penalty cases, you do not have the right to have a defense attorney appointed to represent you. Why is that important? It's important because most of the time, these failures to disclose information, these Brady violations, this withholding of information, this misconduct by prosecutors and police only comes out in the habeas corpus proceeding because at that proceeding you have the right to call witnesses and take depositions and do things that you wouldn't otherwise have the right to do during the criminal trial so we've got this second barrier. if you've got a police officer or prosecutor who's withheld information gets past the trial and it's not disclosed the only places you can make that discovery is through these habeas corpus proceedings in Georgia unlike most other states Georgia does not allow or does not demand demand, demand a, uh, a, an attorney be appointed even when the death penalty we got about 60% of the people on death row in Georgia are there being represented by volunteer
0: attorneys, not appointed attorneys. Which brings up two questions. One, you headed a, a, a organization that dealt with this, and there's also the Innocent Project. And if you... Uh, look at some of the TV documentaries, there are more innocent people in prison for felony convictions, even death row, than I think most people realize. I, and I'm not saying it's a majority. I'm saying even if it's 5% or 3%, that's a lot of people. Absolutely, absolutely. And if you
1: look at the fact that the jurors, as you pointed out very appropriately, that jurors have to determine the facts. If the jurors are not are not presented with all of the facts, then they're not able to return a verdict that reflects the truth. And that's the definition of a verdict, speaking the truth. And if the defense attorney is not given, or the defendant is not given all of the information that should be presented as part of their defense, then the jurors aren't able to do the right job. And and you pointed out that in the case where the governor commutes,
0: we've even got another problem in Georgia. Georgia, right. The governor cannot commute a sentence. That's right. George is very different that way, and I know that, remember the case where the, uh, Teenager was uh, convicted of uh, the jury uh, convicted him of sexual assault because they th- thought that was uh, uh, a, a lesser offense than statutory rape, and that really caused a, a brouhaha because it wasn't. That's right. And the ju- and the ju- and they kept yelling about the, Your Honor, the governor's got to do something, and the governor could do nothing. Absolutely, we've got we've got a, a board of pardons and paroles that are appointed
1: for seven year terms. And they're the only entity that can grant a pardon or commute a sentence. Not, and even the president can't commute a state sentence because it's not a federal offense. So you combine, talk about the numbers, you combine a prosecutor or a police officer's conduct in withholding information. The full case doesn't get presented to the jury. The jury then makes a decision based upon partial facts or facts that may be untrue person is then convicted, and they go into the prison system, an innocent person. What about the fact that we don't have a system now that provides an oversight, unless you go out and get volunteer attorneys, an oversight for that? And it just keeps compounding itself. And then you've got a Supreme Court, for whatever purpose or whatever reason, says Well, it doesn't matter whether they're innocent or not
0: if they get a fair trial. Well, I don't. I I don't think the Supreme Court could be criticized for that, or the Court of Appeals, because they they can't retry all the facts. And they're looking at at, at whether the law was applied. But uh, I I did not know, and this news to me that uh, the attorneys don't have uh, you don't have a right for an attorney on these habeas corpus uh, proceedings. I I don't know what the percentage of uh, innocent people in prison is. I'm sure. I'm sure. Even three percent would be higher than I, than I would suspect it is, but uh, there are enough cases to uh, concern. And one of the problems uh, that I see, and I've always saw this, and I, in fact, I recommended some years ago a change in the law, is the conviction on these crimes by eyewitness testimony, which is notoriously bad. Eyewitness t- and I suggested at one point that on any ca- case that involved the potential death penalty that the death penalty could not be the the the, the, ver, uh, the, uh, the punishment if the only w- testimony was eyewitness testimony and there was nothing else to back it up. Well, you're,
1: you're absolutely right. Uh, the, one of the types of evidence that's been found to be most untrustworthy uh, and most unreliable is eyewitness testimony. People think they see something that's not there. As you know, you're, you've got a scientific background that only about 10% of what someone sees actually makes it into the brain, into the storage area. And so when you pull back out, it also comes back out based upon what's already been stored in the brain uh, from other experiences. That's why cross-racial identification is worse than even eyewitness identification, because we don't have the ability to view what we think we saw. That's why eyewitness identification is bad. If you combine an eyewitness testimony with a police officer's failure to disclose relevant facts about that eyewitness or how that eyewitness was, uh, was
0: coached to testify, then you've got the making of an innocent person being convicted. Yes, and uh, one of the shows that I enjoy, and I do have a science background, is that show on forensics. That's on, on TV, and yep. occasionally they have shows where they find out someone's been innocent, has been in jail 16 years and is innocent, or, or sometimes only in jail six months. But the, the point is, it's always an interesting story. And, of course, it's, uh, at the center of it is, one, the only testimony or the only evidence was eyewitness evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that brings up another point I was talking to a student and, and I pointed out that they ought to, you have a course in, in forensic evidence and I said you need to take uh, Professor Mears' course if you're interested in criminal law particularly and I said let me ask you a question uh, if, you have, uh, if, you, if you test DNA tests and you, you, you test one site on the DNA and it matches uh, and, and absolutely matches the DNA from the crime scene do we have a conviction? Cause the, and, and what percentage? Oh, it's 99%. No, it's 50%. It's either yes or no. That's why they test seven sites. Mm-hmm. Because if all seven sites come out the same way, the, the chances of all seven sites being wrong is one chance in 10 million or 10 trillion or something like that. But the chance of one test to site being wrong is quite high. It's a yes or no, 50-50. And if it's two sites, well, each one's one-half times one-half times one half one quarter of the time is going to be wrong. And then one-eighth of the time, So you do statistics. So I think it's a good idea for students in criminal law to study a little bit about statistics. Uh, in fact, the, the great case on statistics was, of course, uh, out there in uh, uh, orange, O.J. Simpson. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, they, they destroyed the DNA evidence, which, which pointed to O.J. Simpson, but percentage-wise they didn't do enough oh absolutely and and they withheld
1: information uh, initially and because O.J. Simpson had the money to hire the best lawyers the best experts uh, one of the most interesting uh, parts of the DNA evidence in the O.J. Simpson case was when the police again back to police misconduct the police officers planted uh, the victim's blood on O.J.'s socks and this was proven at trial but they actually took blood samples that they had collected at the scene of trial
0: this is robert we're going to have to talk about after a break okay we'll be right back after the break in this case the
2: disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp what should be the course of treatment who is the best person to render treatment and what is the best place to go for the care that is needed If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all
1: ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded Show on America's Web Radio.
0: Be sure to join us live every Tuesday at 1500 hours for the latest in gun news, gun products, gun politics, and other gun-related
1: stuff. That's Tuesday,
2: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
0: This is Professor Robert D'Agostino back with Do Facts Matter? I'm here with Professor Michael Mears. And during the break, we were kind of chatting a little about the O.J. Simpson case. And uh, why that case went the way it is, a case that most people in the country, if you took a, uh, a, a uh, survey, thought O.J. was guilty of the murder, and he certainly lost the civil case, for example, which has a different standard of proof. But the even though the police, in my view, the police had O.J. Simpson, uh, they messed the case up. and. Uh, Professor Mears has looked at that case in some detail, talking about police corruption. You have it right in the O.J. Simpson case, a case they should have had an easy conviction and yet they lost it. Why? Here's why: uh, the the jurors were able to uh, the jurors were presented with
1: the truth of the case because. O.J. Simpson had some very good lawyers and very good expert witnesses. One of the key pieces of evidence against O.J. Simpson was supposedly blood from the victim, Nicole, that was found on his socks, which were found in his floor. If you recall, he allegedly had rushed in, uh, taken off his clothes, changed clothes, and flew to Chicago. In the process of that, he took off his socks and left them lying in the floor of his bedroom. The police had collected blood samples from the victim, Nicole, at the crime scene. The police officer who collected those put them into blood vials to take to the crime lab. In order to keep the blood from clotting and make it easy to test at the crime lab, police always use an anticoagulant Chemical. They put that. So that was put into each of these blood samples. The police and their corrupt and their dead determination to convict O.J. Simpson, which I believe he was guilty, but they wanted more. And so they took blood from this vial and placed it on the socks that were found in O.J. Simpson's bedroom. Two problems. One, it, it was proved to be DNA, and the prosecution presented the DNA evidence. Yes, look, we found Nicole Simpson's blood on uh, O.J. Simpson's uh, socks. Fine. But what Barry uh, and the other attorneys (laughs) were able to point out through their expert witnesses, first of all, that the blood had been planted on the inside of the sock rather than the outside because when O.J. Simpson took off these black socks, and I've seen pictures of them, He took them off, like most of us do, and they were inside out. So when they picked up the socks to plant the incriminating blood evidence, they put it on the inside of the sock, which raised a very good question. How did the blood get on the inside of the sock rather than on the outside? It hadn't saturated through. It was just blood specks. Secondly, when they actually tested the blood, they said, yes, this is Nicole Simpson's blood. No doubt about it. The DNA is correct. However, how did the anticoagulant (laughs) chemical getting in the blood that was on O.J. Simpson. Well, you see, that type of, and that level of corruption would have convicted O.J. Simpson and everyone would have been walked away and said, oh, justice was done. But because the police's corruption, the police officers' corruption, and I think the complicity of the prosecutors, too, they should have known better. Because of that, Barry and his attorneys, uh, all of O.J. Simpson's attorneys, uh, Johnny Cochran, were able to disclose to the jurors the misconduct. The penalty there was a guilty man walked free. Now, he was eventually uh, found, as you point out, found uh, liable in a civil suit, but he walked free from a murder case. And he walked free because the police's misconduct was found out. How many other cases do we know about or don't know about where the misconduct was not found out, where
0: the misconduct was not presented, and the jurors made a decision based upon false evidence? Well, of course, uh, you suggest, and and I think it's a good suggestion, that when it is found out, there should be a public uh, penalty, and that penalty, losing the job, being fined, being suspended without pay. There's got to be something to indicate to others, don't do it. And if there's never a penalty, the temptation to enhance your reputation by getting a conviction is always there. And unfortunately, as we've seen uh, uh, occasionally, it's easier to get a conviction if people don't have lawyers than it is if they have lawyers. And that's why uh, the judges, I've been to court to listening occasionally when our students are are, uh, practicing. One of the things the judge always asks, do you have a lawyer? And they say, no, and, you know, these are serious charges. Don't you think you should get a lawyer? Uh, I can, you know, uh, uh, sign a lawyer to your case. Uh, would you like me to assign a lawyer? And uh, I was in the Sandy Springs uh, court uh, listening. There's a uh, my client was there. Uh, we were going to lunch, and he had a, a fine to pay, so we stopped off. But I found it very interesting just listening to to the judge and 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 how really how really good the judge was about telling people get a lawyer. He didn't say it that way. He said, "Don't you believe you should get a lawyer? You want me to assign you a lawyer? This is not." You know, this is this is jail time here, folks, if you're convicted. And so uh, I think that uh, a lot of judges do try to make up for the problems and do try to, to, to help uh, defendants. Of course, uh, crime is always with us, and, uh, and there's never enough resources to cover all the need. Uh, never. And that's why voluntary uh, lawyers who volunteer are, uh, are, are so, so important. Uh, As I said earlier,
1: there are many, many, many vast, vast majority of our judges and police officers, U.S. attorneys, uh, assistant U.S. attorneys, and our FBI agents are honorable, well-meaning people, and they do their job the correct way. The system is set up so that the defendant should be given a fair shake, and the the playing field should be Somewhat level, uh, it should be so that an individual has the right to exercise their constitutional rights, right of an attorney, right to call witnesses, rights to subpoena witnesses. If you don't have funds, if you don't have adequate means to call witnesses to get experts, then you you're behind the eight ball to begin with. That police officers here in Georgia. Have access to their local crime
0: scene experts. They have access to the GBI. Let's talk. Let's, say, let's talk. The GBI has a great reputation. Um, it's uh, Georgia Bureau of Investigation. It really has a great reputation. Although we've had a, some people come come down here to try to slander their reputation, but uh, you've worked with them. Yes. And 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 you've over a long period of time in a lot of tough cases, and everything I've heard about them is really really good what's your experience absolutely uh i have a long long-standing good relationship with former director
1: vernon keenan matter of fact he's come and spoken to my classes here at john marshall uh one of the most honorable well-meaning well-conducted law enforcement officers that you'll ever see anywhere he ran a good ship he knew what he was doing he insisted that his his agents act honorably and, and the point is they have all that access. Uh, there's some people down there that could. I just dreaded to see them in court because they never lied. Uh, <laughs> there was uh, there were people that you knew you could not get around because they were going to tell you honestly. I can't say that in every situation outside of the GBI, and there is a uh, there is a, a belief mm-hmm. among some local law enforcement and some prosecutors that. They must obtain a conviction no matter what. The GBI, in my experience here in Georgia, uh, the GBI under past directors and under the present director have an excellent reputation of being truthful and honest and upright. If we could replicate that leadership and those agents that are there and have been there for the 20 years or more that I've been working, that I've worked with them, We could replicate that, we go a long way in preventing wrongful convictions because the truth would come out in the appropriate way. Problem is is it's resources. Defendants in Georgia and across this country, defendants do not get a fair shake on resources. Public defenders are overworked, they don't have access to experts. If you want to get an expert now to do DNA testing, you have to go to the judge. And say, Judge, I need an expert to test this DNA evidence that's already been tested. As we saw from the O.J. Simpson case, it made all the difference in the world. But the judge then has to decide whether or not to grant you money. It's not in the budget of the public defender's offices to hire these type of experts. You go to the judge, and the judge then allocates funds. Same thing for bringing in witnesses and things of that nature. Judges are reluctant to spend county money because they don't want to be seen as favoring the defense. Well, they should favor the defense. The the whole system is stacked in favor of the defendant because that's what our Constitution is all about. It's not in favor of letting guilty people walk free. It's in favor of fair trials and making sure a defendant has the right to and have access to all the resources. We don't have
0: that situation right now. Well, of course, but but we really can't, can we? Because there's priorities. There's only some resources are finite, and the demands tend to be infinite. Uh, I I have, uh, just as a personal thing, I I have picked a a few charities which I support. uh, And the question is, uh, I get these appeals from the Public Defender's Office, and the question is, where am I going to give my money? I'm not wealthy, but I'm affluent. I can I can make contributions, and I do make uh, substantial contributions based on my my income. And uh, uh, and I say, well, wait a minute. Am I going to give my my money uh, to the defense public defenders, or am I going to give it to something like Covenant House, which which uh, houses homeless kids, homeless children on the streets, homeless 16-, 17-, 18-year-olds who have no place to go, who are involved in the sex trade and, and need, need to be helped. So the question is, who do, you, who do you prioritize And as a volunteer? And governments have the same problem. And there is more money I mean, or more votes in certain types of uh, subsidies than there is in other types of subsidies. So the, a politician wants to get reelected, where is he going to put his money? Sometimes they're going to put their money where, where they can, quote, buy, unquote, the most votes. And putting money in the criminal defense may not be a high priority. Well, we, we, we've seen that in current political
1: uh, races running right now. If you are running for office and you happen to have been a criminal defense lawyer, That somehow makes you a bad person. (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to get into politics on it, but somehow that turns upside down, the fact that you represented criminal defendants. Uh, Someone asked me one time, why didn't I run for uh, other office? I was mayor of the city of Decatur for almost 10 years, but someone said, why didn't I run? I said, because I'm a criminal defense lawyer, and I'm not going to waste my time out there because I'm in an unfavorable category of, of politicians, but... We can make it. We can fund it. And let me me point out for your listeners, there is a way for us to provide a level playing field for these defendants to get a fair shake. Freedom is not free. You've heard that cliche before. Neither is democracy free. We must pay. We must pay for a system that works. Otherwise, the system... It, it, the system doesn't work.
0: Let I think s- the standard should be reasonably worked, but that. But go well, ahead. Well, even, okay, uh, even reasonably
1: work. If you start off with the fact. First of all, let me point out to to your listeners.
2: Robert, now us think about that. Of
1: all criminal cases, end up in plea agreements. <laughs> Only about two to three percent actually go to trial. But to get that plea agreement where a, a, a plea is fair and reasonable, the defense attorney still must do. His or her due diligence, but there is a way to pay for it, and it's a reasonably fair way to pay for it. Robert, People let us think about that, okay? Court system to resolve civil disputes <clears throat> all the time. And we, when I was the director of the public defender system, we devised a method to come up with over fifty million dollars. Now, this is twenty, almost twenty years ago. We devised a system to come up with at least fifty million dollars a year just for defense, and not one single dime of taxpayer money was used. Let us uh, fig- let us see if we can figure that out while we take a break, and we'll come back and get the answer right after this.
2: In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients. Dedicated to fighting for your healthcare freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs the number four patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. You're listening to America's web radio on the America's broadcast network.com. Thank you for listening.
0: This is Robert D'Agostino, professor Robert D'Agostino, uh, professor at John Marshall Atlanta's John Marshall law school. And I'm here with professor Michael Mears, who at John Marshall law school is uh, fortunate to have as a criminal, uh, uh teaching cr- criminal law and evidence, particularly evidence, which is a hard course to teach as students will tell you. And, uh, and uh, we're we're talking about uh, the resources and the resources necessary uh, to at least make a system reasonably uh, level. You can never do that because the government, uh, really, especially the federal government, has you know unlimited resources. But you certainly could uh, uh, could, could, uh, could could do more about leveling the field uh, to prevent and uh, look most criminal defendants are guilty and, and they as Professor Mears points out you know, they plea out and they plea out because they're guilty of something and they're lucky to get a plea for a lesser charge and, and the and the prosecutors get rid of them and, and clear up their trial calendar, but uh, there are others who should go to trial and should get a fair shake and uh, Professor Mears had a solution, or at least a partial solution to the problem, which is no more. Go ahead, Professor Mears
1: That's uh, What? people don't understand is that in order to prevent police misconduct, prosecutorial misconduct, which is where we started our discussion today, you have to have a flashlight to shine on the truth. That flashlight is held by the defense attorneys. It gives transparency to the system and makes sure that costs money. The O.J. Simpson case is a perfect example of someone with a lot of money, uh, being able to shine light on a, on police misconduct there is a method when the Georgia Public Defender Standards Council was created in 1993 by the Georgia General Assembly there was no not much money involved to, to fund uh, to fund it from the legislature no tax money We came up very intelligent bright people came up with a plan, to use fee, user fees, people who were using the court system for civil cases and other cases would pay an additional filing fee, a tack-on fee, an add-on fee to bonds, add-on fee for filing a civil lawsuit. Those funds, over a period of time, would be then put into a separate account that would be used to fund public defender systems need for resources such as experts and, and things of that nature the estimates originally was somewhere around 50 60 million dollars that those funds would generate over a year's period of time you say well it's it's fifty dollars here ten dollars there five dollars here but you have hundreds of thousands of cases going through the system so the funds would be there in today's world, that would be $150, 000, $150 million, perhaps, but it would be a lot of money. The problem we ran into is that the system was operating fairly well. We got an award from the American Bar Association for having one of the best innovative systems in the United States. Our legislators woke up one day and said, well, there's $60 million sitting over here. Why aren't we using it? It's not tax money. And so the legislators started pulling funds out of that money that was designated for public defenders to build ponds, to do pet projects in their home counties or something like that because it was not tax money so no one was going to get upset with them for using this money. As a result, the ability of the public defender system under that scheme was slowly dissipated and became back to the system that didn't work. If we had the guts as a society, as a legislature. And I would say, if our judicial council would step in and step up, we could reinstate that type of funding in today's world using user fees from courts, using bond uh, add-on to, to bond fees. So if you if you had a you had to pay five hundred dollars for bond, you'd add fifty dollars on. And that fifty dollars would go into the pot to pay. You see, the people who are using the system are paying for the system, not. The mom and pop who's running their little store or the person who's being taxed you know on their home you're using you're paying for the court system and it's being paid for by the consumers of the court system and you can actually put pen to paper get your calculator out and you can see how money could be used there and it should be put in a non-touchable
0: account designated funds we haven't done that in many years. Well, we've got a, a constitutional amendment to, to make that uh, a possibility. But well, I have a suggestion, and uh, you brought this up and you just gave me a suggestion. Uh, there are prevailing parties. Uh, in the, in this state, the typical uh, tort lawyer takes a 40% contingency fee, and uh, if they're using the system in order to enrich themselves, and they certainly do with those kind of contingency fees, uh why not have the lawyer concede two percent of what they uh, what, what what they make, two or three percent, if they prevail on say some something over twenty thousand or thirty thousand or forty thousand dollars of in contingency fees for themselves, instead of taking it from the injured party, take it from that forty percent contingency. And I suspect the tort lawyers would throw a fit if you suggested that they would give up two or three percent. I was talking to a prominent tort lawyer some years ago, who was bemoaning the limitation on punitive damages in Georgia and how much that was going to hurt his client. No, his pocketbook is what he was worried about. And I said, "Look, it's going to hurt your client. Why don't you cut your fee from forty percent to thirty-three and a third percent? You know, cut your contingency fees. I mean, you got private airplanes, you got to a home in Florida, you got a home here. You take why? Why don't? The, why don't you cut that?" He was incensed. So I should suggest that. Let me tell you one other thing, and I, I agree with you,
1: Bob. Most people, a great many people may not know this. When a jury awards punitive damages in a case, sometimes $50 or $100 million in punishment damages, only, uh, uh, only 25% of that money goes to the prevailing party. 75, by law, Seventy-five percent of all punitive damage awards goes into the state general fund. Seventy-five percent of all punitive damages do not go to the person who won the case or got the, punish, or got the punishing damages. Seventy-five percent by statute goes into the general fund. It goes to the state of Georgia. We could use all the punitive damages to add to this coffer of, of funds, rather than put it into the general fund.
0: Again, we're going back to people who use the system. Well, I'm very in favor of starving the government, and I would favor taking those punitive damages, which, of course, are punitive, and so they're not really damages or are compensatory to the the injured party, but use them in a more, uh, let's say, uh, uh, interesting and innovative way. Rather than throwing them into the general fund and letting the politicians uh, have a feeding frenzy, which is what usually <laughs> happens in in this, these c- situations, but um, I, I think uh, you would uh, get a huge uh, blowback from uh, tort attorneys, right. and uh, and you may get a blowback from the state legislature because they like that pile of money that they can spend on fish ponds. But
1: uh, again, if we are if we are sincere as a society about the need for a fair justice
0: system we've got to be able to acknowledge that it's going to cost money i'd rather talk about a fairer system i think in terms of the world that we look at we probably have one of the fairest systems in the entire world but it could be fair and our
1: found our document by which we guide ourselves you and i take an oath not to defend the government we take an oath to defend the constitution of the united states we take an oath as georgia lawyers to defend the constitution of the state of georgia we do not take an oath to defend any party anyone we take a note to defend the constitution i would suggest that every high schooler should be made to memorize the fourth amendment fifth amendment the sixth amendment and the eighth amendment as well as having to memorize the First and the Second Amendment. We have sworn an oath to uphold that Fourth Amendment right to be safe and secure from unreasonable searches. We've taken an oath to uphold our right and everyone's right to have an attorney present when they are questioned. We take an oath to uphold the right of every American to call witnesses to testify on their behalf. We've taken an oath to for everyone to uphold the right to confront witnesses. Confrontation means having funds to ask questions. We have taken the right, uh, we have taken an oath to uphold the right of every American to have an attorney present for them at free of charge. We've also taken an oath to uphold the right for individuals to be free from excessive and unreasonable punishments. There's the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 8th Amendments. They're just as important as the 2nd and the
0: 1st amendment. Well, as a, uh, a Burkean conservative, I believe in uh, always looking w- of ways to incrementally improve the system, make it fairer, uh, make it more honest. And uh, sometimes we seem to be in reverse occasionally. And uh, who knows, who knows what the future will bring. We, n- n- we don't know. However, you know, I look at one thing. Uh, Professor Mears okay, and we've I, wrap it up. and Professor Lynch, uh, we got about 225 years between <laughs> us. Uh, that is the end of the show, and I will talk next week about the Constitution and defending it. Thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the
2: AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.